Our scripture this morning comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 14, verses 19 to 31. Let us listen now for God's word to us. The angel of God, who was going before the Israelite army, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from in front of them and took its place behind them. It came between the army of Egypt and the army of Israel. And so the cloud was there with the darkness, and it lit up the night. One did not come near the other all night. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong wind all night, and turned the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. Then the Israelites went into the sea on dry ground, the waters forming a wall for them on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went into the sea after them, all of Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and chariot drivers. At the morning watch, the Lord, in the pillar of fire and cloud, looked down upon the Egyptian army and threw the Egyptian army into a panic. He clogged their chariot wheels so that they turned with difficulty. The Egyptians said, Let us flee from the Israelites, for the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch your hand over the sea, so that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and their chariot drivers. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at dawn the sea returned to its normal depth. As the Egyptians fled before it, the Lord tossed the Egyptians into the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the chariot drivers. The entire army of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the Israelites walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters forming a wall for them on their right and on their left. Thus, the Lord saved Israel that day from the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great work that the Lord did against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Everything seemed like it was going so smoothly for the Israelites. Pharaoh had finally given in, gave them the green light to get out of town. They're walking through the wilderness. You have a, a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. Everything's good. The people are finally on the road to freedom, finally on the way to the promised land, on the way out of Egypt. The word exodus literally means the way out. So... We finally reach that point, right? This is the climactic point of the story where they are on the way out of Egypt, on their exodus. They were so close to freedom, they could taste it. But then, Pharaoh realize, realizes the gravity of his decision to let the people go. He realizes that his entire labor force is now gone. Who would now do the heavy lifting required to keep this vast empire going? Who, on whose backs would the empire continue to be built? Whose blood, sweat, and tears would he exploit? So his heart was hardened once again. 
And he quickly regretted his decision and began to chase after the people, sent his entire army after the Israelites. So just when they thought they were in the clear, that God had delivered them, they look back and they see Pharaoh's army approaching, coming towards them. And they are crippled by fear. In their fear, they first cry out to the Lord, which should remind us of the very beginning of the book of Exodus, when the people who are in slavery, and they cry out to the Lord, and it goes up to God, and God remembers the covenant with the people and decides to act decisively on their behalf. So once again, the people cry out to God, and God continues to act on their behalf. God continues to come to their defense. However, their fear then gets the best of them. And they turn to Moses and they say, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us, bringing us out of Egypt? What have you done to us, they say? We told you to leave us alone. Why couldn't you just let us continue to serve the Egyptians like we were doing before? They tell Moses that it would have been better to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. The people, as you can see, are profoundly confused. They don't know whom they can trust. They had, now, they had seen these mighty deeds that God had done to the Egyptians. They saw the power of God on full display through the ten plagues. But when you've lived your entire life under subjugation and oppression, you can convince yourself that Pharaoh is just as powerful as God. After all, for all of your life, Pharaoh has been God. This is what empires do to people. The tyranny that they impose is just as potent psychologically as it is physically. So when they look back and see Pharaoh, it's no wonder that they're terrified. Their deepest fears are being realized before their very eyes. Pharaoh, it seems, is exactly who he claimed to be. But Moses tells them, do not be afraid. Stand firm. Because, he says, the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. At this moment, the Israelites are again torn between two worlds. The world that they previously knew, life under Egyptian oppression, where they served and feared Pharaoh alone. And then the world that is yet to come for them. The, world, the land of, of promise, where they will serve only and fear only Yahweh. But that world has yet to come into focus for them. It remains still only a distant promise, a future as yet unfulfilled. So they find themselves standing once again in this liminal space, and they have to make a decision. Whom do they fear? Whom do they serve? And whom do they trust? Now, service connotes obedience and allegiance. To serve someone is to recognize them as your Lord, to recognize their lordship over you. So Israel's claim that God alone is their Lord is a radical claim in the face of the empire because Pharaoh will have no other gods before him. This is very similar to when the earliest Christians publicly proclaim that Jesus is Lord. And by doing so, claim that Caesar is not. Saying Jesus is Lord to us may sound rather innocuous, right? I mean, we 
We say Jesus is Lord, meaning I'm a Christian. I believe. But to recognize Jesus as Lord in that kind of context is incredibly radical. When you live in a world that proclaims the lordship of Pharaoh or Caesar at every turn, when it's so deeply embedded in your culture to the point that it's even engraved on your currency, to claim another lord is an incredibly dangerous and subversive proposition. To claim Yahweh is Lord is to claim Pharaoh is not. But it's one thing to say that God alone is the Lord. And it's quite another to trust in the Lordship of Yahweh. Trust that enough to step out into the sea, trusting that God will guide you and protect you, even as Pharaoh and his army are swiftly approaching from behind you. So Moses reminds them to trust. Do not lose faith now. We are so close. We are so close to ridding ourselves of this monster once and for all. And as they trust, God begins to act again in their defense. Notice that at every turn in this story, God is the one who is doing the work, doing the action. And God is the one who receives praise for it. Now sure, it's Moses who stretches out his hand, right? But... The, the writer, the narrator is clear. It is the Lord who drives the water back. And it's so clear, it's, even in the fact that the Egyptians recognize and say at one point, let us flee from the Israelites, for the Lord, Yahweh, is fighting for them against Egypt. And then verse 30, thus the Lord saved Israel from the Egyptians that day. Not Moses, not the faithfulness of the people, the Lord. Yahweh saved the people. The Lord brought them from death to life. The Lord delivered them. And Israel saw the great work that the Lord did that day against the Egyptians. So, we are told, the people feared the Lord and believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. So Moses gets a little bit of credit. He's not completely shoved to the side. But they recognize the powerful hand of God in everything that transpires on that day. So this is a moment of celebration, a moment of joy, a moment of excitement. Their chains are finally gone. The people of God are now as they were meant to be. They're free. Free to worship as they so desperately wanted to. But interestingly, there's some of the ancient rabbis, when commenting on this story, they have a very interesting perspective about, about this particular moment where the Israelites look back and see that they are free of their captors. In one of the writings of the Talmud, which is this collection of rabbinical teachings that was kind of gathered over the course of a couple hundred years, beginning around the second or third century, one of the rabbis asked this question, does God delight in the downfall of the wicked? Because remember, there's this kind of harrowing moment in the story where the Israelites observe the bodies of the Egyptians washing up on the shore. And so one of the rabbis imagines what the scene may have been like in heaven at that moment. And he writes, The ministering angels wanted to chant their hymns in celebration, but the Holy One, blessed be He, said, The work of my hands is being drowned in the sea, and shall you chant hymns? The image of God in the Exodus, as we've seen before, can be slightly uncomfortable for some people, and has been for many throughout history. Some are a bit put off by this image of the God of war and bodies being washed up onto the shore. 
So the rabbis want to make it clear that yes, yes, Yahweh is the God who delivered us from Egypt. But Yahweh does not delight in the destruction of any of his children, no matter which side of the war they may be on. The rabbis refused to stoop to the repugnant depths of the empire by vilifying so much the Egyptians to the point that their deaths would be a cause of celebration, cause for celebration in heaven. Instead, they offer us a powerful image of a God who mourns the death of all God's children. As we know, wars have been fought as long as human beings have been on this earth. And, as we also know, the name of God is often evoked in those wars. And God is declared to be clearly on one side over the other. Our actions are often used, uh, are often justified and legitimized in the name of God. And the death of our enemies is often celebrated as a victory for God. We craft these narratives not only to justify their deaths, but to claim that this is what God wants and this is what God delights in. But the rabbis powerfully remind us that when we do that, we look a lot more like the Egyptians than the people of God. We look a lot more like the empire than God's kingdom. The image of God offered by the rabbis is worth considering, especially given our propensity to be swept away and worked into a frenzy by the fear-mongering of politicians and media. When we allow that to happen, we put our trust in empire, not Yahweh. And for the Israelites, this is all about trust. Will we trust that God is who he says he is? Or will we turn back and accept the chains of Egypt once again, the chains of Pharaoh? And so they step out. They step out in trust. They put their feet on the dry land that was once covered by the sea. And they put one foot in front of the other. Trusting not only that God will guide them safely across, but that God will meet them on the other side and will continue to guide them. So they choose to trust God rather than Pharaoh. And as they emerge from the waters, we witness the birth of a people, God's people. Scholars have long noted the similarity in language and imagery here between what happens at the sea and what happens at creation in Genesis 1. At creation, God's spirit hovers over the deep. God creates light in the place of darkness. And in the midst of chaos, God separates and divides the waters to create dry land for the people to dwell upon. And here, as God leads God's people from slavery to freedom, again, God makes light in the darkness. And by the force of a fierce wind, wind is the same word for spirit in Hebrew, By the force of this wind, God separates the waters, divides them to create dry land for the people to cross. So this this is a new creation. This is a renewal of God's creation. God displaying once again God's own power to create something from nothing. From these waters of new creation will emerge a people who have stepped out in radical trust, stepped from death into life, from chaos into order, and from fear to trust. That power that is on display in creation and in the Exodus is the very same power that saves us, redeems us, and transforms us. 
And we also should not miss the powerful baptismal imagery that's going on here as well. Because for us, baptism is a palpable and tangible sign of our dying and rising with Christ, moving from death to life, not because of anything we've done, but because of the powerful and irresistible grace of God. And in baptism, we say we are a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. And indeed, we proclaim that God is continuing to make all things new. Like the Israelites, in our baptism, we recognize that God is the one who deserves the credit. God is the one who deserves the praise, not us. Sure, we may have raised our hands like Moses. We may have stepped out onto the dry land and put one foot in front of the other. But God divided the waters. God is the one who calls us into the waters of chaos and brings us safely out onto the shore on the other side. It is the Spirit of God that calls us into the water and leads us out as new people. And, like the Israelites, our baptism is a communal experience. It's a communal event. Many people often think of baptism as simply this deeply uh, personal and intimate experience. And there certainly is that dynamic to it. Because God, of course, knows, loves, and calls us as individuals. But what I love about our particular understanding and practice of baptism in the Presbyterian Church is that we recognize that it's, it's a communal event that incorporates the individual person into the life of the church and into the kingdom of God. Not only does that individual, or the child's parents, make a profession of faith and take individual vows, but so also the community that is gathered makes and renews their own baptismal vows. We vow to support, nurture, and encourage one another. We are entreated to remember our baptism and keep it holy. Baptism, like faith, is not about me. It's about us. Unfortunately, we live in a culture that is marked by rampant individualism. This me, myself, and I mentality has crept in and infected the church many, many times and in many ways. For many, it's become all about just me and Jesus, and that's it. That's all that matters. But this way, this particular way of life and faith could not be farther from the God who was revealed in the Exodus, the God who was revealed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So today, may we remember our baptism and keep it holy. May we respond to God's difficult call on our lives by stepping out in radical trust onto the dry land that God has created before us in the midst of the chaos that surrounds us. And may we choose once again to leave Egypt behind us, choosing instead to fear and serve God alone. Amen.